If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's essentially the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need on one place. Let me explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your pod right from your phone or your computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your pod on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple, and more. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I was sitting there in that like Instagram purgatory for a few seconds going, I'm in the room. I can hear you going, you're just waiting for me. I'm like, I accept it. <laughs> That's the, the fun of doing it on Instagram live. It's such a, um, a lot of technology. Anyway, welcome. I'm so happy you're here. How are you doing today? How are you doing with this pandemic? Well, I'm a natural isolator, so I'm loving the pandemic. A lot of people are not going to like that, but I, I'm loving it, having a great time, isolating, being by myself, and the dogs. Yeah, I love being by myself, too. There's just so many things that I do on my own, and I would be doing those anyway, and now I'm getting to do them without the urgency of feeling like I should be um, somewhere else doing doing more stuff. Yeah. Uh, I... I don't agree with that because I've turned everything down. I've just said no to stand-up requests and no to going on sets, said no to uh, in-person meetings for things if they're not willing to do it on Zoom. And I've said no to even Zoom comedy because I just I can't hear the laughter. To me, it's just I want to jump off my roof and kill myself. It is. It's so awkward. It's awkward. Have you done a Zoom show yet? Did I do it? Not yet, but I've seen a few. Oh my God, painful. Painful. <laughs> painful. I literally would, would rather eat a bucket of dirt. I'm literally calling Dr. Kevorkian, going, end this for me. But then someone told me he's already dead. So you're just stuck with yourself. Um, so what are you what's your personal pandemic process? Like what are you doing to during this time oh i'm literally just zooming with my friends and listening to what's going on with their pets so my so my friend megan today is taking her dog lucy uh for um uh, binaural stimulation therapy because she's going crazy the dog is going crazy during the pandemic oh. won't walk won't eat sometimes all they want to do is walk is snipped at people normally it's not an aggressive dog so I'm just like, how much is that therapy going to cost? And what's the, what's the success rate? And they're like, well, it's new, and it's $400 a session. And I'm like, P.T. Barnum said it best. There's one born every minute. <laughs> Binaural stimulation. Oh, my God. That reminds me. That, that reminds me of when I was looking at apartments. I went to this guy. Uh, I, was, I was considering moving in with this guy, and he had some cats. And I, I brought my cat over to meet his cat. And he was like, can I give your cat a shiatsu massage? Oh, Jesus, you should have run immediately. <laughs> I did run. Immediately. I mean, I will say this. I was like, I'll never I, live with anyone again. I did get my dog uh, a shrink when he stopped eating for a couple of days when he was much younger. And the shrink was like a doggy talker, a doggy whisperer. And it worked. Hmm. Uh, you know, but, and I have also sent my dog to the chiropractor as well. But a specialized chiropractor who works on dogs and like adjusts their bones—it's like a real medical 
thing. It's not like therapy. Yeah. You know, like talk therapy. Yeah. It's not therapy. Yeah. What so are someone they... offers to give your cat a Shiatsu massage, run. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I ran. I was like, oh, no. How long, how long had you known him? I mean, I hadn't known him at all. I met him like that day at my friend's house. And he was like, oh, I have a no I'm leaving. I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions on the gentleman, but he, I met him that, I met him that day. He was, he Did was. Did you meet him on Tinder? He, no, he met him at my friend's house. It's my friend. Well, if I were talking to a gay man, the odd that the answer to that question could have been a yes would have been 50-50. <laughs> I'd be like, did you meet him on Grindr? Oh, yeah, we're moving in. <laughs> there are guys like on these hookup apps that are like looking for a roommate. Oh. Who would move in with someone that you hook met with on a hookup app? Gay men do. Wow. So are you still doing, are you on Tinder? I am on Tinder. Okay. How's that going? You know, uh, well, during the pandemic, it's great because nobody wants to meet. So you're just FaceTiming and you get to have sex right away on <laughs> FaceTime. I like it. <laughs> You can get angles and see things you've never seen before and also do a testicular exam at the same time. I mean, so it's a twofer, I think. <laughs> Is that the only one you're on? Or are you on Raya and, and Bumble? I'm on, and I'm on my friend Miles, who's actually in this chat, turned me on to Raya. Okay. I went on it and then I got off of it because almost everybody, I knew everybody. Okay, I'm on Raya too. So like, what was your experience? You just like, every person was like a friend of a friend? A friend of a friend, and that's just creepy. Lesbians all sleep with their friends, and it's okay. But gay guys, we just, it's weird. Can't do it. Yeah, I know. But I you know what I just went back on that but, I had tremendous luck. Okay, Cupid. Okay, I always hear good things about that, and for some reason, I've been banned from that. Wait. <laughs> okay. Okay, Cupid is the lowest of the low. It is the ghettoest of the ghetto. What did you do to be banned? From OkCupid. I mean, and I wish I knew. They won't tell me. And they won't tell you? That's ghetto. Here's what happened. So I just I mean, it was many years profile. ago. It was many years ago this happened. but I just reactivated my profile. And a guy wrote me that I had dated 30 years ago. And he was the one that got away. What? And he wants to go back out again from 30 years ago. I was a fragrance model at Bullock's Wilshire when he picked me up at that store. We went on one date. I was a complete asshole. Uh, and he just literally wrote me on OkCupid. So he was like, you were not nice, but you were the one. Let's reconnect. I thought he was the one. You thought he was the one, so why? But I already dumped him and thought, why did I let him get away? Why did you do that? Were you were you afraid of intimacy and you were avoiding someone who you really liked, or what was the story there? Well, thirty years ago, I was twenty five, so uh, you know how twenty five year olds are just stupid. Yeah, just don't know how to behave, especially in a relationship. And he was, you know, fifteen years older than me. Oh, well, that's sweet, or aunt. Ten years older than me, maybe ten years. That's really sweet. I feel like just like creative projects have their own time timeline and higher power, I feel like relationships have the same thing. They have their own timeline, timing, and uh, they come back around when and if they should, right? When you're- Well, I'm so glad this one did because Melinda, I'm such a different person now. Really? Oh, spiritually and emotionally, just so, so much growth. And what? I don't say it, I don't, 
don't say it to brag. I say it because other people tell me. So I believe them. You know what I mean? How do you think in, in I mean, what are the biggest ways that you've like really grown spiritually? Like what what's that look like for you? I'm more of an active listener. And when I ask you how you're doing, I genuinely care. And I'll remember what you've told me. How did you? Just, and I don't just sit in conversations waiting for it to be my turn to talk. How did you get to that place? Because that's really amazing for everything. I mean, acting, life, everything is about listening and being I present. There, I got there um, through recovery. I had no idea that I was an immature problem looking uh, for another problem as opposed to looking for a solution. And then I got clean and sober and started working a program and all of a sudden all my character defects started showing themselves and I had lovely mentors in my life that said, here's the opposite of that behavior and if you want to start behaving this way, your life will change. And I trusted them and I did. What were some of the behaviors that they, they told you about that, that you took on and that really helped your life, like specific. Oh, I was a mean person. I was really? not kind. Oh, yeah. Intentionally mean. Would intentionally figure out a way to hurt your feelings and I would do it. And I would think, that's funny. And I don't have to behave like that anymore. Gossip, I learned, was character assassination. I don't have to engage in that anymore. Um, uh, greedy is another big one of mine or was a big one of mine, greed. Um, not being charitable was a big one for me. Um, always being on and never knowing, you know, you don't always have to be on to be liked. Mm. And then I would find people, people pleasing was another one. Is that the definition of like valid, like always needing to be on and needing people to like you mixed with people pleasing? I think that's a lethal, combination because it's like you need validation and you and you're in people pleasing so really you're just using people for validation because you don't trust that you have inherent value on your own yeah and that's a form of like low self-esteem yeah and And i know i had the lowest form of self-esteem until i got sober got into recovery how did you like get into recovery what happened uh, well, I was, uh, I started off drinking and I grew up in New Hampshire and in New Hampshire, nobody was ever talking to us kids about drinking and drugging. And, uh, I remember, uh, taking my first drink, loving it, loving the feeling, and then taking more drinks and more drinks and more drinks. Then I started blacking out, but I did not know it was the alcohol that was causing these blackouts. I would literally wake up, uh, I grew up in New Hampshire. I would wake up in the fields. It would be like six hours later and I would be missing my pants or my shirt or my, all my clothes, just be in underwear. And I was, I, I had no idea that the alcohol was creating the blackouts. And so, um, and at the same time growing up, there was a TV show on called In Search Of, and it was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. And it was a close encounters of the first kind, close encounters of the second kind, people who've seen UFOs. This man looks at this camera one day and he goes, here's how you can tell if you're being abducted. Because you wake up in strange places. And I thought, oh my God, because you're in various states of undress. And I thought, what? Because, and you've lost time. And I thought, oh my God. And I sat, I raced home. I sat my mom and my dad down. I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, a master alien race has been abducting me over the years to learn about humanity. And they quickly put me in therapy. And never once did the therapist say, boy, are you drinking or smoking weed? 
speed or anything like that because I really think that if they had, I would have gotten sober a lot faster. And then I started realizing that it was the alcohol that was creating the problems in my life. And, you know, and alcohol for me was fun and then it became fun with problems and then at the end it was just problems. And it was problems with crystal meth and with heroin. So I just prayed to a God who didn't believe this is going to sound odd. I prayed to a God I didn't believe that I was also mad at that I needed some help. Help came. What, um, how did you, what, okay, what did you drink, first of all? Like, what was your DOC, drink of choice? My, oh, well, my drug of choice was crystal meth. Okay, and then how did that lead to heroin? Uh, mixing it so I could sleep. Oh, my gosh. And then did They're you. They're called speedballs, but when you're young and stupid, you have no idea what you're doing. You'll just take advice from other drug addicts and think, okay, let's do that. Okay, so did you have to like walk me through a day? Did you have to, how did you get the crystal meth? Did you have to call someone for it? Did they drop it off? Are you talking about the very beginning or later on in my drug use? Because later on in my drug use, when I had quite a bit of success, I could call and have it delivered. I could call, I could order Domino's and drugs, and drugs would get there before Domino's. Like when, you're, when you have means. They go out of their way, and you know, even drug dealers have great clients that they service better than they service their lower end clients. And at that time, I was a high end client. Okay, so you, so what did that look like? Like, I would buy an eight ball uh, every three days of meth, and I would buy about two grams of heroin, and I would buy lots of vodka, lots of vodka, lots of vodka, because I would need something to take the edge off. Uh, and about every three days, that's what I was going through. I was spending probably between fifteen and twenty thousand dollars a week on drugs. Oh my gosh! That's and not the highest number I've ever heard. Thank God. So I've heard other people, you know. So like, you basically were high from morning to night. Well, when you're on meth, there is no morning to night. It's all one long seven day stretch or awake. Then you mix a little bit of heroin into it or start drinking a little bit or take some Valium to go to sleep. Uh, because what happens if you don't, the whispers start, the tree people start, the aliens approach. There are things in your apartment. If you look through the peephole of your front door long enough, eventually something out there will move. You know, the paranoia sets in. Is that just a standard psychosis that's, that's happening from sleep sleeplessness? Or um, I can't speak to standard psychosis, but I can tell you it was my psychosis. I mean, I was having conversations with trees. I was 5153 times, Melinda, and on my last 5150, for those that don't know, 5150 is where you are. Uh, you, you basically your rights are stripped from you for 48 hours, mm. right? Or uh, 72 hours, and uh, unless you can talk your way out of it. You're a ward of the state. They put you in the psych ward and they evaluate you because they think you're a danger to others or a danger to yourself. And my last 5150, when I was checking out and the nurse who did my uh, checkout was handing me back my belt because they don't want you to hang yourself, your shoelaces because they don't want you to hang yourself, and your dignity because who needs that when they're in a psych ward? He looked at me and he said, do you want your vacuum cleaner back? And I was like, what? And he said, oh, yeah, when you checked in, you checked in with your vacuum cleaner because you were in a relationship with her. And I thought, wow, this is my life on drugs. I get involved in small household appliances. True love affair. That's the glamorous life of drugs. I can see my friend Marta putting little uh, rainbows. Up. <laughs> oh, my 
my gosh. Wow. Well, um, so you're a miracle. And how did you find? We all are. We all are. That's true. That's true. Um, how did you, so when you asked for help, how did it show up? My, uh, this guy named Steve L that I met when I first moved to California, who was really happy and shiny. It's the only words I can really use to describe him. Um, after I said that prayer to that God I didn't believe in, but I was angry at, and he looked at me and he's like, what's going on? And for some reason I told one person the truth. I said, I think I'm a drug addict and I don't know how to stop. And he looked at me and he said, I can help you. And he took me to a 12-step recovery program. And then was that it? Did you just stay from that no, day on? No, not stay. I got, what I did was is I used that recovery program. I got, I started feeling better. And, uh, and because I started feeling better, I started hearing about cash prizes and dating and using AA as, or using 12-step recovery as a, uh, you know, a dating service. So I got a partner with a really big dick, which became my higher power. My career started soaring and taking off, and I had to help every day to burp it, Melinda. It was so big. Uh, and what <laughs> happened for me was, uh, you know, I got what I thought were all the cash and prizes in recovery, which is the house, the car, the career, the boyfriend, all that stuff. And uh, that program that gave me all those great gifts was the first thing I threw out the window because, don't you know, I can't do recovery anymore. I have to be on set, or I'm on the road, or I'm making this kind of money. I don't need you guys. And... Um, my partner died, and after he died, I called the drug dealer, and I relapsed after having 10 years clean. Not sober, clean. There's a difference. Clean is just not picking up. Sober is working a program to change who you are and having like this change within that allows you to have sustained and lifelong recovery. And that's what I have now. Okay. One day at a time. One day at a time. And how many, how many days has it been now? Uh, I have to check my app on this phone and I'm on Instagram live with you. So I don't want to do that because I'm bad with technology. I'll probably disconnect, but I'm in my 10th year. So I will have oh. 10 years this April. Amazing. Yeah. I'm yeah. coming back up on 10. Uh, and it's been the greatest gift. I have met the most amazing people. Uh -huh. I'm here today because of one of the people I've met, my <laughs> friend Marta, right? That's right. Yeah. Oh, I love Margaret. Um, yeah. Well, that's great. And and do you feel like what's your day to day process to to feel good? I wake up. I pray and meditate. Mm -hmm. First thing, usually, I definitely meditate every night too before I go to bed. I do a little bit of reading. I check in with some of the people that I mentor. I go to meetings, uh, recovery based meetings, uh, and then I start my day. And mm -hmm. if I don't start my day that way. I find myself reverting back to the person that I was before I got sober, but I never want to be that guy again. The mean guy. Yeah. Okay. I know. I feel like the mean guy for me too is still there every day. Every day? It's a choice if I want to like activate that or activate the, the peaceful it's, person. Right. Because when we're sober, it's a choice. Yeah. We and can choose who do we want to be today. Yeah. We choose. We choose. Um, which is door door one or or the mean door. Correct. Do you, uh, what kind of meditation do you do each day? I do these ASMR videos on YouTube, which stands for Audio Sensory Meridian Response. And there's these little videos that make you tingle when people make these sounds, tapping sounds, clucking sounds, mouth sounds, uh, hand sounds, uh, light cues. 
and it puts me into a deep state of relaxation and meditation where my mind goes completely blank. And that for me is the spot of Valhalla, is when my mind is blank. Because normally my mind is on KFUK, the station up here that tells me uh, you won't be able to pay your mortgages, you won't be able to, you know, you'll see your friends every back station. And when I get to shut that off, the station goes to K-Love, which is just quiet, bliss. Beautiful. I love that. So, Ant, um, on this uh, podcast, I, I always ask, like, how did overcoming this trauma, I'm assuming that's your, your biggest trauma, but I don't know. It, it, was that your biggest obstacle or trauma? And, and if so, like, how, how did that inform your creative process? I think my biggest obstacle and trauma was being born. And how did I get over that? I became a comedian. <laughs> it's cheap therapy. People are like, people are like, why do you do it? I'm like, because I get to work my issues out on stage and get paid for it. Uh-huh. Right? You you can understand that. Yes. We get to talk about, you know, whatever it is that's bothering us or whatever it is that tickles us, uh-huh. or whatever it is that makes us feel like uh, we're a part of something bigger. So for me, I mean, I've had several traumas. I mean, being bullied was one. Uh, coming out of the closet and not being accepted by my family. The drug addiction. Um, you know, those were probably, and then the loss of my partner, and then the loss of my dad, and the loss of my sister. I've had a lot of loss in my life. So, you know, those things. But, you know, comedians, we take the temperature of humanity. And we find ways to take pain and make it funny and humorous. And I think that that's the gift that we get to give humanity. And if we have to endure a lot of pain in order to give that gift back, I'm happy to endure it. That's so beautiful. <laughs> it's true. I know. It's. Um, I, I, I do feel lucky that to be a creative person, I don't know what that noise is. Is that me? Yes. Hmm. There. Is that better? Better. Um, I feel lucky when things happen that we have a place to put them into comedy and writing and stuff. Yeah. Especially writing. You know, I'm I'm writing a a screenplay right now based on real events. And uh, it's just so, you know how people are saying, uh, I I don't want to serve or make you a cake because of a deeply held religious belief. You heard that cake baker and... uh, Colorado refused to bake oh, yes. a gay yes. cake. Yes. And he won all the way to the Supreme Court. He won. And I think that's okay. Fine. You don't want to, you don't want to bake a cake for a gay couple. Then I think the gay people should have the same right for our deeply held beliefs. Like we're not going to style your hair. We're not going to do your makeup. We're not going to cook for you. We're not going to be your flight attendants on plane. I mean, the whole comedy would shut down if gay people to stop. If we took a day off, and I remember like a few years ago, they did a call in gay, where they told all gay people to call in and not go to work to show the value that we give society. And I thought, what a great idea. But then I thought, what happens to the straight people that are really sick? And they come back to work on Monday and they were like, Jed, I didn't know that you were a homo. Jed's like, I really just had the flu. Yeah, right. Um, cool. Well, like, how did you, how, how has overcoming your personal trauma informed your creative process, if at all? Well, I think it's all rolled into who I am. So when I start writing a joke or writing a screenplay or trying to sell a TV show, I think it's all sort of what my experience is, the experience I bring to whatever project it is that we're working on. So I think that, um, overcoming 
trauma uh, allows me to always write from a place of I want a show or I always make shows or write screenplays or even write jokes about overcoming something and finding the funny in it. And that's what it's done for me. Norman Lear once said to me, you know, Aunt, two people can see a tragic accident. One people, one person will see the horror in it and the other will see the humor in it. And he goes, you're the one that sees the humor and stuff. And so is Norman, you know. I love that. And you know, I think that actually just going to meetings makes you a better storyteller because it's it's a it's a classic story structure of how it, you know what happened what it's like how it was like what happened what it's like now yeah so it's not just uh, an amorphous blob dump you know uh, there, there there's a beautiful structure with for material to thrive Anna, in there was this uh, girl that I know named Anna David you should have her as a guest too she's really interesting and um, she did this speakeasy at this little place on Fairfax. I know Anna. Was. You know it? Yeah. No, I know Anna. I know Anna, yeah. Oh, you know Anna. And it was a really great experience because you got to get up and talk about a trauma and then make the trauma funny. Hmm. And so, you know, the story I told was when I was with that partner with that big dick, we had rescued this cat that was almost dead on the side of a road. And it was making this weird noise. And Kirstie Alley had invited us to a brunch. And we were on our way to this brunch, and it was a Sunday, and we, we picked up this cat on the side of the road, and we were going to be late for brunch. And I said, just throw that cat out the window. It's L.A. No one will know. We can't be late for brunch because Kirstie is cheap as they come, and she never offers to pay, and it's the first time she's offered to pay. We're not missing this brunch. She's like, if you don't help me save this cat, you will never touch my penis again. I said, we've got to help that cat immediately. <laughs> so we go to this vet on uh, Robertson and Melrose, VCA place. And it's a Sunday, and I'm thinking, this is going to cost me $2,000 an hour for this cat. And this cat's like, and it was like in a lot of pain. We had no idea what was going on with it. So I said, I'm going to run in. I'm going to throw the cat over the counter, and then I'm going to come back out, and we're going to bolt to brunch. I run in. I put the thing down. The lady goes, we've got your plate number. You can't just drop an animal off and leave. And I thought, mother, my. <laughs> so Richard comes in. They see the cat. The lady's like, well, it's a boy cat. We did an ultrasound. This cat has kidney stones, and that's why it's in this pain, and it has not eating. And I was like, oh, okay, well, great. And she said, uh, well, we can take the kidney stones out. And I said, oh, my God, well, let's do that. How much? She goes, $1,500. I go, $1,500? I go, how much to kill the cat? She goes, $7. I was like, and Richard's like, we're not killing this cat. And I was like, oh, my God. So God's been very good to me. So I said, all right, well, what are we going to do with this cat? So... We decide, uh, I go, is there anything else we can do that is not going to cost me $1,500 in an ultrasound machine? She goes, well, you could take the cat home and you could massage its penis and its abdominal area, and that might help break up the stones. And the cat might, and I said, you're telling me I'm giving up brunch with Kirstie Alley to go home and jerk off a cat? And she said, pretty much, if you want to save $1,500. So now we're back at my loft downtown, and there's my partner on our couch, suede couch, Stroking this cat, and this cat is now taunting me, looking at me, giving me cat side eye, going, you know, it's like enjoying it. And all of a sudden, you hear this, and the cat passes a stone, and my partner yells, Yo, aunt, you want to see this stone? I was like, Unless it's a diamond, no thank you, right? (laughs) So the cat stopped crying, and then the cat ate that day, and then we bathed the cat. We got the cat flea dipped, and it was this giant white fur ball, and he called it. Snowball, and I thought that is the least original name I've ever heard for a cat. 
the cat hated me. So Richard would go to school. He was a substitute teacher. And one day I was told and this cat started looking at me and started being really nice to me out of the blue. So I was like, is this a trick? Because these cats are tricky, right? So I pick up this cat. The cat's like, and it turns upside down. And Richard said, wow, the cat turns upside down while you're holding it. It must really trust you. Then it turned back over and it stopped purring. So I hit it on the head. I was like, cat, what's wrong? Nothing. It died in my arms. And Richard said to me every single day before he went to school, please don't kill my cat. And I was like, I would never hurt this cat. Now I'm holding a dead cat thinking, I'm never going to touch that penis again. He's definitely not going to sleep with me because people frown on when you kill their animal. I pose the cat in a position as it starts getting like really hot and it starts to rigor mortis. I pose it in our bed. I pretend to be laying on the couch when he gets home. He walks in, he sees the cat's dead and he said, did you kill my cat? I was like, I never killed that cat. Long story short, Melinda, months and months later, he's on his deathbed. He's dying from cancer, my partner. And his last words to me, literally his last words to me were, did you kill my cat? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no, I swear to God, I did not. That's how we turn trauma into some form of humor. That's right. You know, that's. I've actually made my life's work about that, basically. I mean, I have. (laughs) No, I only have the one cat, and he's kind of a private person. But um, what's his name? He he prefers that I don't talk about him in comedy. No, I'm I'm just kidding. His name is Stardust after Ziggy Stardust, of course. Nice. Um, But I I really I I teach uh, I do consulting for turning your trauma into creative treasure, web series, writing pilots, movies, books, whatever. And then I I do that in my own life too. Like all my material and my comedy special is from some traumatic nugget that I've just made into a funny story with a good message, essentially. Because I believe that everything that's happened, like I do believe now that it's happening for me and not to me. And it did teach me something awesome if I can see what the lesson is, you know, but um, I love that about you. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, what is your creative process? Like, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? Do you write every day or only? No, I write on stage. Wow. I'll take topics and I'll go out and I'll just try, you know, I'm really off the cuff. I don't know if you've ever seen me live, but I, I like to interact with the audience I like um, the danger of writing on stage. But then once I say something that gets a laugh, it is etched in my memory forever. I never forget it. Okay. I built like a whole act like that, a couple acts. So you, so, okay, you don't, you write on stage and then after your act, do you go like transcribe it into a, a Word doc or you just. I don't have any of my jokes written down. You just have it. You're one of those people that doesn't need to write anything down. You just now remember it for the next time. Correct. Wow. So you're just walking around with all that data here. Just lots of it. That's why when I meditate and it goes quiet, that's priceless to me. Okay. Because I can't even imagine that because I have to write everything down so I don't have to carry it with me. Yeah. I literally write, I, my day planners look like a beautiful mind. The only thing I'll write down is a set list. If I'm being, you know, if I have to do an hour, I'll write a set list of all the stuff that's up here. But like, I don't have like a, 
you know, like I was friends with Joan Rivers and she had her filing cabinet of every joke alphabeticalized, you know, by topic and filing cabinets and stuff. And I don't do any of that. So you don't have a trouble accessing it when you need it? Um, I, well, no, that's not, let's not say that. I mean, I've frozen on stage before, not often, but maybe two or three times in my career where I've frozen. And I don't think that that has anything to do with um, knowing your jokes. I think it just has to do with just fright at the time for whatever reason. Okay. So, like, how many specials have you done? Two. Okay, so you've done two hour-long specials. And did you yeah. have any of the same material in, in in both, or did you, was it completely new? Um, I think there was a little overlap for when, okay. I, when I talked about being a flight attendant, but I think that was about it. Okay, so you, um, do you repurpose that material for anything else, books? Uh, movies, your scripts, do you take, for instance, a chunk story from your stand-up and turn it into, because I do this all the time, I'll take like a chunk from my stand-up and turn it into a web series episode or a pilot? Um, or do you just let it be the stand-up? there's a little bit of every part of my act and almost everything that I do. I used to have a show on Logo called The U.S. of Ant, and, uh, you know, I talked about, uh, you know, there are gay people in every single town, and if you don't believe it, look at the Hallmark store. You know, I mean, there's a Hallmark store in every town. There's always a gay person that works at the Hallmark store because who else would give a shit about cards? So, uh, you know, then we turn that into a show where I throw a map at a dart, a dart at a map of America, and we go looking for the gay people in that town. And that came from the stand-up. So, that's fun. Yeah, I was hosting Celebrity Fit Club on VH1. You know, I, have, I, you know, I had a lot of problems with my weight, and I talk about that in my act about diets and stuff. But that was incorporated into the show. So. You know, do you? Yes. Okay, cool. So, do you do you like having your own TV shows? Is that what you prefer? Or do you prefer just straight stand up? Um. Well, I was. I'm one of the lucky. I have a very blessed life, Melinda. So I don't want to say that no, I don't like something. Right? You, I, I like everything that has ever happened in my career because it's been a gift from God. Mm. So when you're offered a show, you know, by MTV for their new network called Logo, and they're going to put your name in the title, the U.S. and Ant. Of course, yeah, it's you know your ego loves that kind of stuff, and it was a really fun show to do. Um, but for me, the funnest thing for me has always been performing live on stage, doing stand-up. Mm. That's where I feel the most alive and the most creative. Yeah, it's, it's, and how did you get into doing stand-up? Oh, it was a complete accident. I was a flight attendant. I had what? a major, yeah, I had a major agent on the plane who I had no idea who he was. And I had Dolly Parton on a flight. I got her to sing nine to five. And I was cracking jokes over the PA system. And this agent said, you're really funny. You should call me if you're ever, uh, you know, going to be doing any time in Los Angeles. And he gave me his card, put it in my pocket of my blazer. And I was laying over here in Los Angeles. I was staying with another flight attendant who lived here who was an actor part-time. And I emptied out my pockets and I put it on the table. And he looked at it and he goes, oh, my God, where did you get this card? I said, oh, that old queen, I had him on a flight. I think he was hitting on me. He said, do you know what this card is? I go, I can read. It says Ka. He goes, no, you idiot. It says C-A-A. I was like, that's Ka in my life. And he goes, what did he say? And I told them. And then he had me call the guy. I called the guy, brought me to meet him. Uh, I made him laugh. The next thing I know, he uh, sets up a um, 
an industry showcase for me at the Improv. And then I had a half a million dollar development deal with Fox that next day. Are you kidding me? The first time you did stand up, you got a development deal? The first time. I didn't even, um, wow. all I had to do was, uh, I didn't know what was going Thank God I didn't know. If I had known what was going on, I would have fucked it all up and this would have a different ending and have a different guest right now. But I didn't know what was going on because I was a flight attendant. You know, I'm a small town boy from New Hampshire. So I had no idea what a development night was. I had no, no idea any of that. All this agent said for me to do was dress up as a flight attendant and come on stage and tell the funny stories that you told me. And that's all I did. Wow. So did that become your act after that? Did yes. you continue a that big act? Part of my act was always talking about being a flight attendant. That's really fun. I have a flight attendant bit, but it's not nothing like yours because I didn't work as a flight attendant. But that sounds incredible. Can I go well, watch that somewhere? Well. How long were you a flight attendant? I wasn't a flight attendant at all, oh, but I okay. I have a joke about when you go on a lot of first dates, you it you can't you have to tell your same story over and over, and you, it starts to be like a flight attendant doing a rote safety speech, and then I do like yeah. a safety speech. But uh, it's I didn't work as a flight attendant, but it sounds very glamorous. But you'd be a great. I would. But you're a better comedian. I'm a better comedian. I don't. Yeah, I, I love that job except for that one thing. What was it? Oh, yeah, passengers. If we didn't have passengers, I would have been the best flight attendant. But I was so mean back then. Really? Oh, I was the meanest. People mean queen in the sky. I'd grab my arm and I would slap them and I'd be like, you paid for a seat, not my arm. Oh, I was so mean. People would ask me for decks of cards and I'd be like, this is a 747, not a 711. I mean, I was so mean. I actually would probably be the worst flight attendant because I get irritable and in confined spaces, and I do, and I'm an, and I'm a germaphobe, so I would yeah, be the I worst. The flight. I was drinking on the airplane. Oh my gosh! So how did that work? You would just go back in the cabin and and the lower low galley of the DC ten, we would just slam drinks back and smoke downstairs, and uh, and you know I don't even know why I became a flight attendant because I am not good in emergency situations and I'm afraid of heights. So, I mean, just, I just wanted to get laid. That, and did you get laid a lot? All the time. <laughs> did you? I was something special in the air and on the ground. <laughs> so, um, so like, did your career just hit the ground running from the first night you were a flight attendant? Did it work out great with the CAA person? And then suddenly you were developing your TV show? No, it was over a, a longer stretch of time than that. You know, it was like the development deal happened. And what happened was is they prevented me from signing deals or doing anything else with anybody else. They basically locked talent up to lock you up. Mm -hmm. And so when that deal ended, it was like almost like starting over all over again. Oh my gosh. And how did you deal with those career ups and downs where you're like literally up here and then you're like, you want to kill yourself. I used to do the show called unhappily ever after I was on the show for five seasons. It would launch this WB network when there used to be a network called the WB. And uh, when that show ended, I got this other show uh, called the secret diary of Desmond Pfeiffer. People complained about the show. They said it mocked slavery and it, and it didn't treat black people well, which was not really true because a um, uh, uh, black slave in the White House was actually making all the decisions and running the country. So I thought it was a real positive portrayal. But that show got canceled, but I had a pay or play deal. Uh, and then from there, I did some other pilots that never went anywhere. So it was just sort of like down, 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 down. And then Last Comic Standing came around. 
How was that experience for you? Great. Really great. It really put me on the map in a major way. And then in season five, I was a judge. They asked me and Kathleen Madigan and Alonzo Bowden to judge. Uh, And it was just great. A really great experience. It was the number one show of the summer the year it launched. Wow. That's so cool. Because some people did not have a good experience on it. But it sounds like you had the best experience. I had a really fun experience. They They treated me well. Um, you know, there was some drama that went on, obviously, but I understood that this was a make-believe TV show. There's no such thing as reality, and I really decided to play a role. I played it really well, and I had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I think I'm having Alonzo on next week. Oh, I love Zo. Matter of fact. Um, do you? What do you think of the current climate in comedy Um with the with the Me Too stuff happening and the cancel culture, what's your take on it? What's your hot take? I mean, for me, I think that cancel culture is, uh, you know, I think for the first time, a lot of disenfranchised voices are starting to get heard. And I think that that's important that we hear people who have felt minimized and who have felt on the outside, you know, and who haven't had a voice. So I think it's important. Do I think that all cancel culture is good? No, but I also don't think political correctness is good either. I think that's killing comedy. Mm. How so? When you have comics uh, afraid to say what they think and feel, you know, we take the temperature of humanity. And when you start censoring the thermometers, you're not going to get an accurate gauge as to where we are as a, as a culture and as a people and as a society. Because I really think that we shine the light on the disenfranchised and we shine the light on injustice. Is there a space for people to come back from being canceled? And what does that look like? In terms- I don't know. I'm watching Louis C.K. And I don't even think he understands he was canceled. I mean, is it just me or he's just showing up doing sets and people are flooding to the clubs? And I don't know. I just think I don't think anybody told him he was canceled. And I, to me, I'm just like, OK. <laughs> I also believe that he has a right to make a living and he has a right to say what he wants and he has a right to defend himself. And. That's not discounting what all the women said that was happening to him because I'm friends with one of them, you know. But I, I also feel like, you know, we can take things too far. So mm-hmm. we've got to find sort of a, a way to communicate with each other, to learn and understand, to change and to grow. Yeah, I think that that's the key is is change and growth and a space for for all humans to be able to change and grow. But like, and and what does that look like? You know, what's an appropriate amends or appropriate way to make it right so everyone can, you know, move forward and coexist? And and I don't want to be on record as saying don't believe, because I think that you should believe everybody that comes forward and says they're a victim. I absolutely think that they should be believed and things should be investigated and looked into. You know, I believe that, you know, and I also believe that, you know, uh, the disenfranchised have to have a place and a platform and can use their voice. I'm lucky that right now we're in a very special moment in time where people seem to be listening. Yeah, I do. I think it's a very special moment, too. And I and I think, you know, um, I don't know what that noise is. I don't I don't think it's from me, though. I think maybe. Oh, maybe it was an angle. Okay, sorry about that noise. Whatever it is. Anyway, yeah, it, it's a special moment in time, and it and it's 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 going to take course correction, and and that's what intimacy is is learning how to communicate better and and move through challenging times. Um, yeah. 
So anyway. What I, do you think about it? What do I think about which part? Cancel culture. Um, I, I echo the sentiment that, you know, it's, it's, people are having their, their voices heard, you know, for really the first time in a lot of instances. And there is going to be that calibration of things going, you know, of of things evening out. And I think, you know, things are coming out and, but I also do, you know, I think it's important. It's an important time for disenfranchised voices to be heard. And also it's a time to, to find a way to, to have, you know, to keep the conversation going about solution and yeah. um, accountability and responsibility and, and, and making the world a better place moving forward, basically. I mean, my, my favorite thing is when people are called out, especially during me too, the, the, that own the behavior and say that they want to learn and they want to do better. I love that. I love that too. I love that. You know what I mean? It's just like, don't deny and run because then you just look like a bigger asshole than people already think you are. Yeah. And let's get out of the, you know, the shame cycle and the generational trauma and step outside and, and get better, you know? And I think all humans deserve um, to, to have the, the space to do that. Agreed. Of course, there are levels. Some things are are flat out crimes, you know. So that's a different yeah. story. But um, anywho, but even there though, even there, like we'll use the Harvey Weinstein as an example. Like he denied all of that stuff, and it's like, look, there are like hundreds of women coming forward. You're denying it. Like every all of them are wrong. All of them are lying. This is some big conspiracy. Well, that like, was. Come on, dude. That was infuriating, and so was the Bill Cosby. That was completely infuriating. That was infuriating, right. and thank yeah. and thank God that there were repercussions there, because I don't think it would service. be. It doesn't. That wouldn't be a safe world uh, to to live in. You know. What do you think about now that it's hitting the stand-up comedy world with um, Brian Callen and uh, Jeff Ross? And what do you think of that? I mean. It's it's surprising. Uh, how do Has you anything like that ever happen to you? Of course. And you've never said anything about it. Of course, I've had um, sexual harassment and sexism. I have not had. Um, I have not had a sexual assault. Yeah. So it's a different thing. I think. I'm glad that that hasn't happened to you, but I'm sorry that you were. Um harassed sexually. Thank I you. I find that repugnant. Yeah, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's ugly. Have you, yeah. has it happened to you? Yeah. Oh my gosh, how did you deal with it? Uh, I was working on a Disney television show at the time and um, I just internalized it and didn't do anything. Yeah, so, and I think that, that that's, Probably what that's what a lot of people do, you know, because it's not easy to to come forth with these uh, with these things. I think if you're a man, too, it's a little bit more difficult because you are uh, in a position of perceived power because you're a man. Like you're supposed to be stronger or something like that. So I think it's a little harder there as well. And I think for all sexes, though, all genders, it's difficult to come forward because one, 
we're always under that fear that we'll never work again. They'll blackball us. And that's a real thing. So when I hear these women talking about it, I'm like, I get it. We live this. When I hear about the toxic culture at the Ellen show, I've had nothing but good experiences with Ellen, but that doesn't negate the fact that there could be a toxic work environment there where people believe that if they said something, they would be canned. Say, I heard, I just read something that, you know, the producers were like, there's a line of people a mile long waiting for your job. But that does not create a good culture. That mm -hmm. creates a toxic culture. You know, and, and have you worked in, in toxic cultures like that, that were abusive? Yes. Uh, and I'm not saying, by the way, that I, I don't know anything about her show. So I'm not saying that's a toxic environment. But I'm asking, have you worked in toxic environments that were abusive? Yes. How did you handle it? Just sucked it up. Well, you know, the, the pressure is real because it's like everyone wants to work. And well, for me, you know, I was like 23 or 24, 25 years old, young, first time on a set, not knowing. So when things happen to you, you think, oh, this is the way it works. You don't know any better because there is no class that teaches you what happens your first day on a set. You show up and you learn the ropes. That's just how it works, or at least for me, that's how it worked. So you show up, you learn the ropes, and people are very kind to you, and you think that's what that person, that's what that, that's how it's supposed to be, I guess. And you only learn differently when you move on to another show and that isn't there, and you're like, wow, that first experience was really awful. Yeah, I've worked in some very scary situations. And I think growing up, I was so afraid to speak up because I grew up on eggshells. My dad was a rager that it's like as an adult, it manifests and I'm just a people pleaser. I want everyone to like me. So I don't want to speak up and I don't want to say something. And, and it's like, and you also want to keep your job. And then also people are complicated. They're really nice to you one day, and then maybe they're also doing something really shady over here. So it's like it's Correct. so complicated, and it's you know, like when you're Melinda, when you're 25 or 26 years old, and you're on a TV show, and they're paying you ten thousand dollars a week, you take a lot of abuse. Yeah, I could see that, and so that's where it gets really tricky, and that's why it actually is miraculous that any of this is even happening. I mean, I'm watching the news. I'm friends with a lot of these people. And I'm like, what? What? This Me is like great. It's crazy, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have the answers. But I think a conversation, keeping a conversation going towards solution is the is what I am trying to do. And that's kind of the best I can do with it. And this whole podcast is based on that, a conversation geared on solution and overcoming obstacles. Exactly. That's what makes it so beautiful is that that's where your passion is. Thanks, Aunt. Are you still doing your podcast? I was doing the podcast called Second Chances. I decided to move away from it. Greg Baldwin still does it. It's a really fun podcast. You can download it wherever uh, you download podcasts. Same as yours, wherever you Wherever you want to, wherever you listen to podcasts, you will find this podcast, right, Melinda? That's right. This podcast is on Apple Podcasts and like all the. Is it on iHeart? It's on all the things. Yeah, Pod, uh, Podbean, all of them. All of them. I just started doing it though. I've only been doing this since the pandemic hit. You're kidding? Nope. I just started this. Natural at it. I don't even see you looking at notes. What? You're I, natural. Thank 
you. I it's a lot happening over here. And um, but yeah, I just started it because the pandemic hit. I was already in talks to start one, but then I was just like, oh, I could just do this in my living room and it would be fun to connect. <laughs> it would be fun to connect with people. So right, it's kind of it's right. a it's a it's a low budge situation and sometimes there's like sound issues and things happening, but it's it's been awesome to connect with people. What are you working on next? Uh, I'm in development on a few shows right now. Um, I am writing a screenplay right now uh, and I'm in the process of uh, contemplating not yet. I was offered a drive in tour but I'm probably not going to do it just because I'm just not ready yet. I would rather just isolate still. I don't feel that safe yet. Yeah, good for you. I mean, I think self-care, self-protection is key right now. What? So what's your screenplay uh, writing process? Like, do you wake up and start writing? No, I storyboard the whole thing out and then give myself scenes each day to write based on the storyboard. Okay. So and I write the, the plot out, and then I put everything on index cards on a wall, and then I start writing scenes. And then I'll start moving scenes around or deleting scenes or editing stuff that doesn't quite work. And then I'll send it out for coverage uh, to see before I give it to anybody to read. I like to get coverage done on it. And then I'll ask friends to read it, and then I'll ask friends in the industry to read it, and then I'll ask my agents to read it. Okay, and where do you send it for coverage? I'm not using one of the online coverage places. Okay. And yeah. what do you storyboard on? Like a dry erase board? No. on a, I get a, a long, uh, you know, that rolled white paper like you get at the deli when they wrap your meat, your, your sandwich in that white paper. Uh -huh. That paper. Okay. And do you, um, did you ever take like a really good... And I do it in pencil so I can erase it. What? I said, and I do it only in pencil so I can erase Oh, I love that. Did you ever take a good screenwriting class or you just wing it? Wing it. I love that. Yeah, I had a screenplay option many years ago. And then uh, just during pandemic, I thought, God, I got all this time. I might as well start writing something. Do you write uh, alone or with someone? Uh, right now, I'm writing with somebody on this particular project. Do you write for like an hour a day or it doesn't matter? I write uh, for whatever I feel. So sometimes I'll write for four or five hours. Sometimes I won't write any. Sometimes I'll write an hour. I don't ever put my time constraints on because this for me has to be something I'm in love with. And if it feels like it's a job, I'll never finish it. Do you, um, have you ever written a book? Uh, is that, that's online somewhere. Yeah, I had a book deal uh, and then I relapsed and I spent their advance and never gave them a book and they what? sued me to get it back. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> God, how much yeah. money was it? Uh, the advance was, I think, seventy-five grand. Oh I my God! Drugs. You yeah. how fast did you blow through seventy-five grand? Oh, I don't know, like a month. Oh my God! Yeah. How do you have to shoot up to go through that much drugs, or can you just smoke it? I shoot up. Okay. Yeah, I shoot up and I booty bump. What's booty bump? Up the butt. Wow. The colon is direct uh, to the bloodstream. Okay. It's getting so gross. <laughs> okay. Well, um, well, we got lots of hearts. We got lots of hearts on that booty bump. Um, well, like, what brings you joy right now in your life? You do right now. This moment. 
It's the only moment that really exists. Well, you're such a lovely person. Do you still, and you're so inspiring. Like, is that kind of your life's work? It, is it something it is. service oriented? Being, as my dad said on his deathbed, he said, you've gone from worst to first in my book. And I cherish that. That's so beautiful. And do you find that like you help a lot of people by your staying sober? Uh, well, in my recovery program, I mentored 26 people. So I help a lot. How but They help me more than I help them. I get more out of the relationship than they do. They help me more. That's so sweet. How do you do handle the time management? Of mentoring. They're my primary purpose. Mm. And I'm really clear about what my primary purpose is, is to stay clean and sober and help someone else. And everything else comes second. Mm. What um, part of town do you live in? I live in Hollywood. Why do you want to come for lunch? Yeah, what's the address? No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm making ribs. You're making ribs today? Costco had a sale on them, so I bought a ton. Which Costco do you go to? Washington in uh, uh, West LA or the one with the, with the uh, I want to say it's Culver City maybe, uh, the one with the In-N-Out Burger in the parking lot. I don't know. I don't have a car. I'm in Los Feliz. Okay. Uh, I, oh, there's, well, there's one by you too, but that one's always too crowded. I got to join it someday, but it's just so many families. Okay. Listen, we have a minute left because the Instagram live shuts down in one minute. So it's telling me it's about to shut down. But I, first of all, want to say thank you so much for stopping by today, sharing your light and your life and your recovery. And um, congratulations on everything. And I want to say to everyone watching, thank you for stopping by. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with the wonderful aunt. And I kind of wish I would have asked him more questions about what it was like to be a judge on Last Comic Standing. Um, next time, next time I'll get into that. Anywho, um, you guys, I can't thank you enough for listening, um, for all the sweet comments you've been sending. I really appreciate hearing your thoughts and, um, you can email me anytime at lptpod at gmail and, uh, thanks so much for sharing this podcast. We, we can't do like keep this podcast going without you. Um, so you're, you're really valuable to me and I, I really appreciate you like sharing it and subscribing, um, anywhere you get your podcasts, leave it, leaving a review on Apple podcasts is, is a great thing to help others know what they can come to expect from listening to the podcast. And if you believe in this message of, you know, um, talking with people who've overcome great adversity, obstacles, and trauma to go on to, to do great things and their process for doing that. Um, why don't you support us uh, by, by sharing this podcast or becoming a patron on the Patreon or sponsoring us through anchor.com. You can do any and all that. All of it's appreciated. Love you guys. See you next time. Till then, enjoy the process. What else do we have, really?